this morning in relationship to the observance of Memorial Day. Memorial Day was originally commemorated for soldiers who were killed during the war between the states, but the holiday was later extended to include all of the U.S. war dead. The custom of honoring the graves of the war dead was uh, began before, really before the end of the war between the states. Then in the south, in Columbus, Mississippi, uh, they claimed the origination of the formal observance for both the Union and Confederate dead in 1866. But it wasn't for a hundred years before the United States government proclaimed Waterloo, New York, as the birthplace of the holiday. The people of that town first observed Memorial Day on May 5th, 1866, to honor the dead from the war between the states. Businesses were closed, graves were decorated, and flags were flown at half-staff. Despite these early celebrations, Memorial Day had no fixed date until 1868 when Commander-in-Chief John A. Logan of the Grand Army of the Republic, which was an organization of Union Army veterans, issued a general order designating May 30th, 1868, for the purpose of strewing with flowers or otherwise decorating the graves of comrades who died in defense of their country. Since 1971, most states observed the federal practice of celebrating the holiday on the fourth Monday of May, although a few states still observe the May 30th date, which of course is today. You all should be familiar with the tune Taps that is played by the military to close out the night as well as to honor those who have fallen in combat. But you don't know the whole story behind Taps. It began in 1862 during the war between the states when Union Army Captain Robert Ellicombe was with his men near Harrison's Landing in Virginia. The Confederate Army was on the other side of a narrow strip of land. During the night, Captain Ellicombe heard the moan of a soldier who lay mortally wounded on the field. Not knowing if it was a Union or Confederate soldier, the captain decided to risk his life and bring the stricken man back for medical attention. Crawling on his stomach through the gunfire, the captain reached the stricken soldier and began pulling him towards his encampment. When the captain finally reached his own lines, he discovered it was actually a Confederate soldier, but the soldier was dead. The captain lit a lantern. Suddenly he caught his breath and went numb with shock. In the dim light, he saw the face of the soldier. It was his own son. The boy had been studying music in the South when the war broke out, and without telling his father, he had enlisted in the Confederate Army. The following morning, heartbroken, the father asked permission of his superiors to give his son a full military burial despite his enemy status. His request was partially granted. The captain had asked if he could have a group of army band members play a funeral dirge for his son at the funeral. That request was turned down since the soldier was a confederate. Out of respect for the father, they did say they could give him only one musician. The captain chose a bugler. He asked the bugler to play a series of musical notes he found on a piece of paper in the pocket of the dead youth's uniform. The wish was granted. 
The music was the melody that we know as taps that is used at military funerals. And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's just bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are in fellowship, prepared to study God's Word, and then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, for over 200 years, this nation has experienced a degree of freedom unique in human history. That freedom is based on the fact that our forefathers understood a tremendous amount of doctrine. Many were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, spent many years studying the Word of God, both as an avocation and as a vocation. And it was from that storehouse of doctrine that was built through the 17th and 18th centuries that the capacity for freedom was built into the citizenry of the colonies. As tyranny reared its ugly head, they resisted. And Father, they provided for us as their legacy a nation that is based upon establishment principles of freedom and an understanding that man is born basically evil and fallen and needs government, needs the rule of law, but protects the citizenry from the tyranny of government. And Father, there are so many things that are happening in our nation today that threaten that because the people in this country have drifted far afield from those biblical roots that framed the thinking of the Founding Fathers. And Father, the only hope for our country now is not a political agenda or legislative solution, but is a turn of volition. People in this country need to realize the bankruptcy of life without Christ and without hope and without eternal life and turn to that fountainhead of truth to turn to our Savior and to turn to the Word of God is the only solution for eternal truth. And apart from that, there is no hope. And Father, we pray for our nation, for our leaders. We pray for those who are in a position to teach the truth that they would indeed have the blinders removed from their eyes that they might see the truth of Scripture and understand grace and teach the truth. And there are so many false teachers and false teachings that multiply throughout the land, we pray that they would be restrained and that there would be a clear platform of truth that the people of this nation would make it clear what their volition 
determines that just as the Jews at the time of Jesus made it clear that they were rejecting the grace solution of the Messiah and dying on the cross as a substitute for their sins, that that the people today would, would make that decision just as clear, whether it is for or against Christ. And we would pray that the gospel would be made clear abundantly so that people would make that decision. We know that we cannot pray that people would be saved because you do not interfere with their volition. But we pray that you would do that which is necessary to make the issues clear, that a clear choice can be made. Now, Father, as we study your word today, continue our study of John 6, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that are going on in that passage and how they apply to our own lives and our own thinking. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to the sixth chapter of John, and we will continue our study of the Bread of Life discourse and the argument and griping that resulted among the Jews. We are down to verse 60, but because this is such an extended section, an extended dialogue between Jesus and the crowd, we continually have to go back and review. I want to make sure you understand this. Somebody once said that repetition might get boring, but repetition is the key to all learning. The things that you learn, the things that you repeat over and over and over again. One of the important things that we need to realize is that we want to hear these things not so that we remember them, but we want to hear them so much that we can't forget them. Because it is easy in the midst of the battles of life to forget that which is just superficially learned. But when the heat is turned up, that which continues and that which we apply is that which is drilled deep within our soul. So let's review John 6. Begins with the sign, Jesus' first sign in the chapters, the feeding of the 5,000, the 5,000 men. And the response of the multitude is that this must be a great welfare system. We're going to make this man king. And instead of recognizing the spiritual principles that Jesus is teaching, he is identifying himself with Yahweh of the Old Testament and drawing a, and John is clearly drawing a parallel between what Yahweh did in the Old Testament for Israel in the wilderness and providing manna and providing physical nourishment, Jesus is also providing physical nourishment to demonstrate that He is the God of the universe and that He can supply the spiritual need. But they reject that. Their eyes are on a physical, political solution, not on a spiritual solution. And the sad thing is that today we live in an era when too many Christians have that same political agenda. They've given over themselves over to crusader arrogance and Christian activism. What we learn from this passage, one thing we learn from this passage, is that the solution is not a political or legislative solution. It's a spiritual solution. If you don't have the spiritual solution in place, it doesn't matter who you elect, it doesn't matter what party's in control, and it doesn't matter uh, what the political moves are, it's not going to work. The spiritual solution must be in place. And too many Christians are caught up in political activism, Christian activism, and crusader arrogance, and they're doing nothing more than, as J. Vernon McGee used to say, polishing the brass on a sinking ship. See, we can't whitewash the devil's world. This is the devil's world. Our job is to communicate the gospel, number one, and, spiritual, and principles of spiritual growth, number two. And when there is a remnant of believers in the land, God will bless by association 
the overflow of that land. Whether you're talking about an imperial form of government as existed in ancient Rome during the uh, period of the 1st, 2nd century A.D. when they uh, had a tremendous amount of blessing and prosperity because of the proclamation of the gospel and the believers who lived there, or whether you're talking about a democratic republic like we have in the United States, either way, it doesn't matter the form of government as long as there is a remnant of believers, that nation will prosper and experience a tremendous amount of blessing. But it begins with a spiritual solution. The Jews rejected that. Then Jesus dispersed them, and that night he performed the second miracle. He walked on the water in the midst of the storm, privately before the disciples, but of course word got around afterwards because he showed up on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and it was about a two-day walk, and how did he get there so quickly? The people wanted a king. They wanted to take him by force, and they wanted to make him king. Their agenda was driven by their own arrogance, and there's nothing more destructive to us personally or to us as a nation than operating on arrogance. And Jesus Christ knows that the crowd is negative, that they've rejected the solution, and as he continues to teach them, there is a progression through this passage. And he, as he makes the issues more and more clear, their negative volition reacts more and more, and they begin to grumble and complain and argue among themselves. What does he mean? How can we put this into practice? Who does he think he is making these kinds of claims? And their, their negative volition intensifies. And as that negative in, uh, uh, volition intensifies, Jesus seems to turn the heat up in terms of his claims. He becomes more dogmatic and he begins to express his claims in language that is more and more odious and obnoxious to the hearer, to the Jewish hearer who was negative to doctrine. And he increases the antagonism. What is his strategy? He wants to make it clear to one and all that they have had ample opportunity to hear the gospel, to hear it clearly, and to and they are rejecting it. John, could you turn this down just a little bit? It's clicking. Appreciate it. So Jesus feeds the 5,000 to illustrate his ability as Messiah to feed them spiritually. They respond by wanting to take him by force. That night, privately, he walks on the water and controls the storm. They hear about it. It intensifies their desire to make him their king because anybody who can feed them, what a welfare system, anybody who can walk on water and control the storm can clearly control the legions of Caesar. So this guy is the man for the hour to deliver them from the domination of Rome. But Jesus responds to that in verse 27, tells them that they need to put their priority on the permanent eternal spiritual realities as defined by God and not on the temporary, temporal, physical issues in life. But they reject that grace solution. Jesus makes it clear that the solution is grace. God has freely sent the solution in his own person, and they reject that. They respond by saying, what must we do to work the works of God? They're oriented to legalism, they're oriented to works, and they have rejected grace as the solution. They are impressed with themselves, they're impressed with their own ability, their own good works, and operating on arrogance, they want to get ahead with, go ahead with their agenda, and they reject God's plan and program. As they reject God's grace solution, Jesus responds by making the gospel more clear. In verse 29, he says that they need to believe in Him. He is the one that God has sent. 
And then in their arrogance, they reject that and they say, give us a sign. As if feeding the twelve to 15,000 was not enough. Walking on the water was not enough. You see, when you're operating on negative volition, when somebody is negative to the word, the issue is not facts. Because it's a spiritual issue. Facts will not convince the person who is negative. So never get caught in that trap. When you're witnessing to somebody, if they continue to resist and they continue to try to reinterpret everything that you're saying, just stop. Make the gospel clear, but don't try to convince them because the unbeliever that has set himself in negative volition is never going to be convinced by any argument because the issues aren't intellectual. If the issues were intellectual, if the issues had to do with rational evidence and empirical evidence, then the entire generation of Jesus' day would have accepted him as Messiah because he provided all of the rational and empirical evidence that man could ever hope for. But it was rejected out of hand because the ultimate issue is man's arrogance and man's depravity and man's desire to rule himself, and to set his own agenda. And in that, he rejects God's solution, no matter how clearly it is expressed. Jesus goes on to claim that he is the bread of heaven. He equates coming to him, very important to remember this, coming to him is equated with believing on him. We saw this back in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. So there is an equation there of believing on him, coming to him, and believing. The one who comes will not hunger. Notice that Jesus starts setting everything up back here. This is how we understand the passage. He talks about hunger. He talks about thirst. There's a parallel here. The one who comes will not hunger, and the one who believes will not thirst. Now, he's going to build on this idea. He then challenges their autonomy. They have rejected him and his claim to be the bread from heaven because the issue here, the ultimate issue that underlies the whole battle here, the whole conflict is they're asserting their agenda versus God's agenda. It's their authority versus God's authority. That's what we must understand. So Jesus comes back and he emphasizes divine authority. All that the Father gives to me shall come, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And then he pushes the claim even more in verse 44. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And we have seen that what that refers to is the cross. Jesus says, when I am lifted up, all men will be drawn to me. In other words, it's an attraction that God is continually moving to bring people to salvation, and it is their volition that rejects God's grace provision. And Jesus is going to show in the midst of this conflict that it is their volition. God has done everything and provided everything, but their rejection is clearly the result of their volition and their rejection of him. So he claims to be the only one from the Father, the bread of life. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. He says, he who believes, the issue is faith alone in Christ alone. He who believes has eternal life. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the living bread. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh. So he talks, here we have an analogy. 
we talk about the bread represents his flesh. And his flesh is really a figure of speech, and a metaphor which stands for his, his body. Now we're going to build on this. Remember, here we have hunger and thirst. Bread is related to hunger. So Jesus makes it even more clear. You get down to verse 51, he says, or excuse me, verse 53, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh and drink his, the, drink the, eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, hunger relates to, is satisfied by eating the flesh. Thirst is satisfied by drinking the blood. Now, this is metaphorical language here. It's figurative language. He's using these to relate to what he's already said before, coming and believing. So, eating the flesh, drinking the blood, represent accepting Jesus. Just as you eat, something becomes a part of your life. You appropriate it for yourself. That's what the image represents here. Jesus is saying, unless you believe in me. And he's making it very graphic here. And he's using terminology that is just going to grate on the Jewish consciousness. And I want to take a little more time to go back over this and see what has caused this. But first I want to look at the reaction. That's brought us up in terms of review. And Jesus laid his claim that that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood. Incidentally, starting in verse 54, he changes the word for eating from the Greek word estheo, E-S-T-H-I-O, which is the normal word for eat, and he changes it to trogo, T-R-O-G-O, which has... adds to the idea of eating, the concept of eating with enjoyment. Sitting down to a favorite meal and just relishing it. And why is he doing this? Why does he up the ante here? Why does he go from just eating to eating with enjoyment? Because he's emphasizing in here that these they need to be oriented more to grace. There's a pleasure in relying upon Jesus Christ. He just keeps upping the ante here and emphasizing, contrasting their rejection of grace to God's provision of grace. You have to eat this with enjoyment. And they're just rejecting it. And the background of this is is the stumbling block that this is causing, which is introduced in verse 60. Verse 60, Jesus says, Many therefore of his disciples, many... Therefore, his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Now, up to this point, Jesus has been talking. And now, we, from verse 60 down to verse 71, the Apostle John is going to give us a few more editorial comments to help us understand the dynamics that are taking place here. So he tells us that many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement, who can listen to it? Well, first of all, 
What is a disciple? We have to clarify a couple of terms before we go very far. Therefore, when they heard, that is, as Jesus had been teaching them, when they heard this, His disciples said... Now, who are the disciples? Well, this term disciple is from the Greek word mathetes. And this is a word that is misunderstood by many, and we have to be careful with it because it has different connotations in the Scripture, different nuances. The basic meaning is a mathetes is a disciple, a learner, or a student. That's its basic general meaning. And disciple is one of those Christian verbiage words that we use it so frequently we sort of lose its real meaning. So let's uh, retranslate this. Many, therefore, of his students, when they heard this, said, We are to be students of Jesus Christ and students of his word. So this is a general sense. It's used a little more technically to refer not just to a student, but to a student who is very positive to the Word. This refers to a believer. It is not synonymous to a believer. As we will see in this passage, not all believers are disciples. Never confuse that. This is a problem in the Gospels. A lot of people want to go to the passages that talk about a disciple, that if you wanted to be a disciple, and there are certain conditions laid out for being a disciple. Well, if a disciple is equal to being a believer, then to be a believer you have certain conditions placed upon that, and that ends up being a works salvation. A disciple is a maturing believer who is advancing to spiritual adulthood and spiritual maturity. So you have the general sense of just a student, a little more technical sense of a positive believer who is advancing to spiritual maturity, and then the third sense is one of the twelve. And it is also used in that sense in this passage. Now, in this passage, Jesus talks about three groups of people. He talks about the Jews. For example, back in verse 41, it says, The Jews, therefore, were grumbling about him. Verse 52, The Jews, therefore, began to argue with one another. So this is written by, this is not an anti-Semitic statement. Remember, the Apostle John is a Jewish believer. He's not anti-Semitic. This is a reference to those Jews who are negative to the gospel and have rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior. The next group he refers to are the disciples. Not the twelve, but just the general crowd. So these are believers, but not the twelve. This is the second or the second meaning. The first was just a general student. This would be unbelievers and believers could be called disciples. And then just those who are positive, who are growing. He's talking about believers here, not the twelve. And then later on he will talk about the twelve, starting in verse 66. So he says, Many therefore of his disciples, these are believers who are in the crowd, not the unbelieving Jews, but believers, when they heard this, as he has advanced his teaching of doctrine and clarified who he is and his claims, it becomes harder and harder for them to accept and understand what he is saying. This word translated, New American Standard translates this difficult statement. That sort of uh, dilutes the meaning a little bit. It's the Greek word skleros, S-K-L-E-R-O-S. And skleros means a harsh a rough, abrasive 
statement. It grates on them. When they hear this, they, something inside just tightens up. They can't understand this. It goes beyond what they're willing to accept. It's not that they don't understand what he is saying, but they do understand what he is saying, and they understand the implications that he is calling for a 100% commitment to, to God's plan and program, not just salvation, and they're not ready to do that. So it grates on them. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? And then in verse 61, Jesus says, it says, but Jesus conscious that his disciples, and once again, that's a, a bad translation. The Greek there is the uh, verb from oida, meaning to know, plus the phrase in auto, which means in himself. So he knew in himself. This relates to the omniscience of God and is a reminder by the Apostle John that Jesus knew what was in all men. Back in John 2, 24 and 25. Jesus knows what is in all men. And Jesus knows that there are those of his, uh, believers out there that, when they, that they are reacting to his statement. And they're beginning to complain and say, how can he say this? So his disciples grumbled at this, and they said to him, and he said to them, excuse me, he says to them, does this cause you to stumble? Now the word here is from the Greek, skandalizo, S-K-A-N-D-I-L-I-Z-O. Now, this is an interesting word that has as its etymological roots the idea of falling into a trap. It's derived from, the, from an original reference to a bait stick in a trap or a snare. This is where you would prop something up, and use a stick to prop it up and dangle the bait there, and then when an animal would come along and hit the bait, knock the stick down, the trap would be sprung and you would ensnare the animal. So the original meaning of this would be to trap or to ensnare someone. And it came to be used metaphorically to refer to something that ensnared someone or trapped someone. And by that it came to refer to something that became a hindrance in a person's life, caused them to fall by the wayside. Eventually it came to mean to be offended or to cause sin. And here it has the idea of causing an offense. And Jesus says, does this cause you Offense? Does this offend you? Now that is a clue to understanding part of what's happening here. So now that we have understood the idea that they are offended by what Jesus says, we need to stop and go back a minute and look at what he said. Remember he's dealing with two issues that both relate to his work on the cross. That's just a little foreshadowing so you understand where we're going. He's talking about those who will come to Him, will no longer hunger, and those who believe on Him will no longer thirst. So he relates the hunger to the issue of bread and eating, and thirst to drinking His blood. Now the bread represents... The bread represents His body. The drinking represents His blood. But there's more to it than that. First of all, 
the, the literal bread represents his physical flesh, which represents his body, but not in a physical sense. 1 Peter 2.24 says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Well, the term body here refers to his physical death on the cross. Now, the physical death was not what paid the penalty for our sins. Now, that may come as a surprise to some of you. I know others of you that's not. His physical death did not pay the penalty for our sins. Why? How do we know that? If you go back to Genesis chapter 2, God said, In the day that you eat from this fruit, you will die. Now, what did God mean? Death was not physical because the instant in the construction there, you have a a cow perfect plus a cow infinitive absolute of the word, Hebrew word, mut, which means it's M-U-T-H, and it means death. When you add, have that kind of construction, it intensifies the main verb. You will certainly, emphatically, instantly die. Now, when Adam ate from the fruit, he did not die physically. He died spiritually. He doesn't die physically for another 980 some odd years. But his physical death is a consequence of the spiritual death. In fact, all suffering in life is a result of Adam's spiritual death. So the penalty for sin is spiritual death, not physical death. So we know that it wasn't Jesus' physical death on the cross that paid the penalty, but he had to die physically because his physical death set the stage for resurrection. For his resurrection and ascension, and his resurrection as the first fruits for the rest of us. So so when you look at the issue of the body... It speaks of his physical death, which looks forward to the resurrection and ascension. The blood, in turn, is another representative analogy, and we need to take a little time on this to understand the dynamics for understanding the word, the phrase, the blood of Christ. It is a symbolic phrase. It is not a literal phrase. It's not talking about the literal hemoglobin in the body of Jesus Christ. He was on the cross... And there was some bleeding on the cross, but there's not much in a death of crucifixion. There is not much physical bleeding, just a little bit. He did not bleed to death, and it is not his literal blood that saves. In fact, even Greek lexicons recognize this principle, and they define, for example, in Bauer, Art, and Gingrich, which is one of your standard Greek lexicons, you have the word for blood, hyma. And in there, Arnton Gingrich states that, that this refers to the blood and life as an expiatory sacrifice, especially in relationship to Jesus' death as the means of expiation. In Kittle's uh, Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, it says that the ideas which the New Testament links with the blood of Christ is simply a pregnant verbal symbol of the saving work of Christ. Now, that word pregnant verbal symbol means that this is a figure of speech. 
it is not literal and is not to be taken literally, but that it stands for something in the spiritual realm. Furthermore, D.A. Carson, I don't find a lot that I agree with that D.A. Carson says, because he's in the lordship camp, but he wrote an interesting little book called Exegetical Fallacies, and he says in that book, a third level of the same problem was painfully exemplified in three recent articles about the blood of Christ in Christianity today. The author did an admirable job of explaining the wonderful things that science has discovered that blood can do. What a wonderful picture, we are told, of how the blood of Jesus purifies every sin. In fact, it's nothing of the kind. Worse, it's irresponsible, mystical, and theologically misleading. The phrase, the blood of Christ, refers to our Lord's violent, sacrificial death. In general, the blessings that the Scripture shows to be accomplished or achieved by the blood of Christ are equally said to be accomplished or achieved by the death on the cross. So the phrase, blood of Christ, represents the death, the spiritual death, of Jesus Christ on the cross. So taken together, this phrase, the body and the blood, is going to represent the totality of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, both in terms of his spiritual death as our substitute, his physical death, which set the stage for the resurrection and then the ascension. Now notice how he's going to bring this in later on in this same chapter. Before we go on to that, though, we need to finish talking about the blood of Christ. Now in the Old Testament, you had various sacrifices. And in the Old Testament... The sacrifices emphasized there was a literal blood sacrifice and there was a figurative or symbolic meaning. In the New Testament, you have the blood become symbolic of a literal Meaning. Now, the blood of the animal in the Old Testament, the blood of the animal contains the soul or life of the animal. This is stated in several passages in the Old in the Old Testament, and specifically emphasizes the fact in Leviticus 17:10 and 11 states any Israelite or any alien living among them who eats any blood. I will judge that person who eats blood and cut him off from the people. So he is taken out from the people. He is cut off completely. And then it states, For the soul of the animal is in its blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make an atonement for yourselves. Now remember, in Leviticus 17, it emphasizes and it prohibits the Jews from eating literal blood or drinking literal blood. Now what did Jesus just say? Jesus just said, you have to eat my blood. Now, if the Jews are operating on a purely superficial level and not seeking the the true meaning of his words behind the figure of speech, they are going to be what? They're going to be offended. They are going to, it's going to be very abrasive to them because that is, is, it sounds as if he's saying that they should do something that will cut them off completely from the nation Israel and will threaten their eternal destiny. 
But instead of that, Jesus is using the phrase to refer to what will be accomplished on the cross. Drinking his blood is analogous to accepting his spiritual atonement for our behalf on the cross. Then he goes beyond that. Once he says, he who eats, that unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. And then he goes on to talk about, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And he shifts to trogo, emphasizing grace orientation. And all of his talk in this, his whole discussion of this, just grates on the ears of the disciples. Now, these are believers, but he's painted this in such harsh language that they haven't stepped away from their legalism yet. And see, that's the problem. Believers, can, they can still be believers and still be walking in legalism. And so it's, he's challenging them to get away from their legalism, to break from Judaism, and to become really grace-oriented. And they just can't handle it. And so they leave him. And that's the way it is with so many believers. They're operating on arrogance. They're operating on morality. And they're operating on concepts of trying to gain God's approval. And they just can't get much beyond simple salvation. Now that's the background for understanding verse 60 and 61. Jesus says, does this cause you, does this offend you? What if you should behold the Son of Man ascending where He was before? Notice how He brings the idea of ascension into this. We've already talked about how the body represents the physical death, which sets the stage for the resurrection and the ascension. So Jesus is tying the whole work of atonement together from crucifixion to ascension. And He says, if you should behold the Son of Man ascending, if He ascends then he mu- to heaven, then He must have come down from heaven. So he's challenging them, knowing that he will ascend to heaven. He is laying the basis now for their future frame of reference. What then if you should behold the Son of Man ascending where he was before? And then, verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. In other words, you don't save yourself. And the first mention of Spirit here, Numa, is the Holy Spirit. This relates to the work of the Holy Spirit at salvation. You go through life, and at this point, somebody explains the gospel to you. That salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. You don't do anything to earn it or deserve it. Jesus Christ died on the cross as your spiritual substitute. When he hung on that cross, God darkened the skies between 12 and 3 p.m., 12 noon and 3 p.m., During that time, God the Father imputed to Jesus Christ every single sin in human history. It was during those three hours that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins. He was alive physically, but he was separated from God the Father in substitutionary spiritual death when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it was during that time that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins. He was still alive physically. It was only after that, when his payment was completed, that Jesus then said, It is finished, to telestai in the Greek, which means everything has been paid for. Now, when Jesus said that, it had all been paid for. He was still alive physically, he had not bled to death, he had died as a substitutionary spiritual substitute for us. On the cross. 
And it was a violent death. It was a violent spiritual death, but not a physical death. And he suffered incredibly during that time. This was portrayed in the Old Testament. People say, well, why was the Old Testament so bloody? Why this emphasis on the sacrifices? Because if every day you have to go to an altar and take an animal, an innocent animal, a lamb or a goat or a calf, and slit its throat and watch it bleed to death and watch it go through its death throes, it is going to teach you something about the consequences of sin, how terrible it is, how destructive it is. It's a visual picture of the violent consequences of sin. So when Jesus goes to the cross, he dies a violent spiritual death between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when he is separated from God the Father. Then he dies physically, and his physical death is peaceful. He says, after he says, it is finished, he says, Father, in thy hands I commit my spirit. And then he exhales and dies physically. Very calm, very peaceful, not the normal death of crucifixion, which is very tragic and usually takes a day or two longer. Jesus then, as he hung there on the cross, he was dead, physically dead, and the soldier runs the spear up inside his side, side, and John says, and the blood and the water came out. Now you only have that separation of hemoglobin from lymph after death has occurred. So that signifies that he was dead physically, but it also is not to signify that he bled to death, for he was already dead. Now Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, and when we hear the gospel that Christ died on the cross for our sins, and we say, Father, I believe that. I believe Jesus Christ died for my sins. It's personal, not just that that the Bible says it. That's not going to get you anywhere. A lot of people believe that. This is believing that Jesus... that the Bible says that, but that I believe He died for me. At that moment, God the Holy Spirit creates a human spirit. Because you are spiritually dead, God the Holy Spirit creates and simultaneously imparts to you a human spirit. And at the same time, God the Father imputes to that human spirit His very own eternal life. You are... The perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is also imputed at that time. And when the Father sees that, He declares the believer to be just. And so we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And that's the dynamics of salvation. But the whole concept of the atonement in Christ's crucifixion is a stumbling block. Jesus says, why does this cause you offense? And this is a problem with the Jews. Romans 9.33 says, Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. In 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul writes, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Galatians 5.11, But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. You see, the fact that the Messiah had to come and suffer at the first advent was not expected by the Jews. 
They expected a kingdom. That's not coming till the second advent. And the reason there is a difference is because the Jews rejected Christ at the first advent. If they had accepted him, he still would have gone to the cross. We don't know how the dynamics would have been. But he still would have had to go to the cross. But the kingdom would have been established at that point. But they rejected him. And so the nation Israel is now out under divine discipline. Now in verse 63, Jesus emphasizes the spiritual dynamics. It is the Holy Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. In other words, you can't do this yourself. You out here are operating on your own agenda. But it's the Holy Spirit who gives life. He's not denying the faith or the volition of the individual. We simply believe and we are saved through faith, not because of faith. We are saved through faith. Dia plus the genitive in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We are saved through faith. And then it is God the Holy Spirit who creates that human spirit and regenerates us. It is the Spirit who gives life to flesh profits nothing. We can do nothing to save ourselves, nothing to gain the approbation of God. And then Jesus says, The words that I have spoken to you, that is, all that He has said in explaining the Gospel, explaining who He is, they are spirit, because they will produce a human spirit in us if we believe, and they are life. And then He emphasizes the point again in verse 64 to make sure we haven't forgotten it in the midst of the metaphors and in the midst of the figurative language. He says, But there are some of you who do not believe. See, that's the issue. It's belief. That's what eating and drinking all represents. Eating, drinking, coming to Christ all represent belief. Faith alone in Christ alone. There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray Him. So now we're narrowing the focus. We've gone from the Jews who are antagonistic to Him to the disciples, many of whom are, are true believers, but they just can't handle what he's saying. They can't take that, that, accept that level of commitment. Others are, who are just learners, who are not believers. And then, of course, we narrow into the twelve, one of whom is going to betray him. And the focus now goes on the inner group, the twelve. Verse 65, And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. Once again, he is emphasizing ultimately the Father's sovereignty. And we said when we studied this back in verse 44 that God's sovereignty coexists in human history with man's freedom. So God's sovereignty does not override our freedom. God's sovereignty does not negate our volition in belief. But ultimately, it is God who saves us. We do not save ourselves. And then look at the results in verse 66. As a result of this, Many of his disciples withdrew. As a result of what? As a result of Jesus teaching the gospel? Well, some of them left because of what he said about the gospel. But what he's really teaching is submission to the authority of God. And that's the way it is with so many believers. It's fine that they're going to end up in heaven, but they have their own agenda for life today. They don't want to commit to the plan of God and submit to the authority of God. So instead of operating on humility and teachability, they're just like the crowds. They have their own agenda for life on earth, and they really don't care about learning about God's plan and program for the spiritual life. So many of his disciples withdrew, and they were not walking with him anymore. But they're believers. Many of these are believers. 
And just like those believers who withdrew, many believers today are failures in the spiritual life because they cannot submit to the authority of God in their life. Jesus then, verse 67, turns to the twelve. Now this is a real biblical invitation. The end of the service. I've given my sermon on the bread of life. Now we're going to get the invitation. Everybody's gone except the twelve. And Jesus turns to them and says, why don't you guys leave? Now, when was the last time you heard an evangelist say that? Why don't you guys leave? Everybody else is gone. They can't handle doctrine. They don't want to hear the truth. Why don't you guys go with them? It's a reverse invitation. And Peter speaks up for the whole crowd. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. You have doctrines of life. Only by listening to you teach can we know what life is and what life is all about. Only by submitting to doctrine are we going to have life today and life eternal. Verse 69 he says, and it's accurately translated in the New American Standard with a perfect, it's a perfect tense, we have believed, we meaning all the disciples, they apparently have talked among themselves, and they have all, as far as Peter knows, they're all believers, He's not aware of Judas's deception. It says, And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is another title for Jesus Christ. They recognize his, that He is Messiah, that He is holy, and that He is the incarnate Son of God. And then Jesus responds with a little foreshadowing here. Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is an accuser? Literally, it's diabolos, meaning an accuser, technical term for the devil. And this is an accuser. He is one who rejects and challenges. One of you is an accuser. This is Judas, who rejects the gospel and challenges the claims of Christ. So apparently he knows at his very heart, whenever he teaches, Judas is rejecting what he says and criticizing those remarks. And then John closes out the section by saying, Now he met Judas, the son of Simon, Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And now we see this tremendous literary technique of the apostle as he begins to foreshadow the coming of the cross. You see, in all the other gospels, you have this same dynamic take place. Take place. The first half of the gospel, Jesus is teaching the crowds. Jesus is confronting the Pharisees. Jesus is presenting his claims as the Messiah. And then it comes to a climax, and there is the rejection of Christ by the leaders and by the people. And then with that rejection of his claims as Messiah, Jesus shifts his message, and he shifts his, his strategy, and he begins to focus on teaching the disciples. Because once the people and the leaders have rejected him, then the kingdom is going to be postponed. And so John shows this in this chapter. It starts off, Jesus is at the height of his popularity. He's got the crowds with him. And then by the end of the chapter, all but the twelve have left him. What did he do to cause everybody to leave? Why didn't he follow how to win the, the advice and how to win friends and influence people? Why didn't he read any of the popular manuals on church growth? Because Jesus taught doctrine. And the more accurately you communicate doctrine, the more abrasive it's going to be to people who are operating on human viewpoint, and the more it's going to drive them away. Because people, especially today in the climate in which we live, 
People don't want to listen. They don't want to submit to the authority of God. They're in rebellion. They're in rejection. They're negative. They want their emotions stimulated. They want to feel good. But they don't want to think. They don't want to submit to the teaching of God's Word. And they don't want to learn. They think they intuitively know what they need to know about God and spiritual things. And so in their arrogance, they reject the truth. And the results, I think, for our day are going to be just as catastrophic as the results for the generation of Jesus' day. That generation saw the coming of the fifth cycle of discipline when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. And I fear that unless there is a turning in our nation today, we will see the same catastrophic result as our society gradually and swiftly implodes and destroys itself because we have rejected the spiritual solution with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the clarity of Scripture, that it does not mince words, but it makes it clear that the issue is Jesus Christ and Him alone. That Jesus Christ came to the earth with one purpose in mind, and that was to go to the cross to die as our substitute. And there all the sins of humanity were poured out on Him, and in His body He carried our sins. He died for us spiritually, as he hung there between 12 noon and 3 o'clock, and he suffered unimaginable agony and a violent spiritual separation from you. And during that time, he died as our spiritual substitute. And Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their eternal destiny, they are without hope and without eternal life, we pray that right now they would realize that the issue is Jesus Christ alone. It's not their works, it's not their morality, it's not their failures, it's not their successes. It's simply what did Jesus Christ do for you at the cross. And there he died as your substitute. And the issue is clearly stated by the Apostle Paul. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, Father, we pray that you would remind us of the things we have learned today. Help us to think upon them as the Holy Spirit recalls them to our mind. That we may meditate on them understand them, that they might become usable doctrine in our soul. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.